Hello, welcome back to Forensic Friends. I'm your host, Shelly. And as per usual, I am salty with how the government is handling COVID. <laughs> but what else is new? So not too long ago, the province was put into lockdown again. So that meant restaurants closed and it was like a province-wide thing. But schools were only closing in certain areas. I don't know. Some retail is still open, like, like the usual Walmart, Costco, whatever. And then about a week later, they announced that there was a stay-at-home order. So lockdown went into lockdown. I'm not sure what the difference between the two were, because my understanding was you're not supposed to be going out if you don't need to anyway. And my theory is that by the next week, the lockdown that went into lockdown will go into lockdown. Honestly, like, I know it, it sounds a little hypocritical to say that I'm sick of lockdown, but I mean, the truth is everyone is. I want to keep people safe. I want to make sure that people who are vulnerable are safe. But just the way that it has been handled has been making it very hard for people to want to stay in lockdown, and I can sympathize. Like, I'm pretty introverted, so I'm fine. I don't need to really go out that much. Though it is nice to still be able to see friends and stuff. But... Rude. But psychologically, like, we've gone through lockdown. Most of Canada was pretty good during the first lockdown. Like, people wanted to stay home. People wanted to keep each other safe. And then we reopened because, you know, it was summer and people are getting kind of antsy. Okay, like the numbers were pretty good. And then we kept dipping back and forth into lockdown. Like it was a little bit of lockdown and then it was a full lockdown, except not really still it, like a region by region lockdown. And this back and forth is so frustrating because it seems so arbitrary. Like I've, I've already said it several times, but once the numbers started rising, we should have gone just right back into lockdown the way that it was before, and uh, we would have been fine. The numbers would have gone down. The premier said if the numbers start going up and we start approaching that second wave, he won't hesitate to apply the emergency brakes. Yeah, he didn't just hesitate. He, it was like pulling teeth to get him to, to do something about the rising numbers. So. During reopening, we were down to like 80 cases a day in the entire province. Keep in mind that Toronto itself has 3 million people. All the other areas in the GTA also have pretty big populations. So considering we were down to under 100 cases per day, it was pretty good. The numbers went up so high, so much higher than before in the first wave. And we still did not see any changes to, to lockdown, to safety measures. Schools are still open, and that's where a lot of the cases are coming from. Like, I can tell you from dealing with COVID specimens, there have been school outbreaks after school outbreaks. But no, it's fine. We'll just kind of keep hanging back and forth and letting people jump between regions because one region is more locked down than the other. And all you have to do to cross a region is, like, cross an intersection. So, of course, people from higher risk areas were going into lower risk areas that were less locked down and had restaurants open, which obviously would make those higher risk areas. It was stupid. The whole thing was dumb. The vaccine rollout situation is embarrassing. Honestly, embarrassing. I was lucky to have gotten both of my doses in a reasonable time. As I've mentioned before, originally the second dose was supposed to be given to us 21 days after our first. Mine got pushed to 35 days. 
okay, not too bad. My friend Chantel, who I don't think she's been on this podcast yet, my other previous podcast, she she and I worked together and her second dose was delayed to be four months after her first dose. So like she's not fully or she's not optimally protected, even though we both are working with COVID specimens in the hospital. It's nuts. It's ridiculous. And yeah, I, okay, I'm done. I'm done being angry. <laughs> I'm not, but I'm done for now. So this week I wanted to do a topic that kind of combined, I guess, both my fields. So combining both forensics and microbiology. But first I want to go through just a very quick review of microbiology in regards to gram negative versus gram positive. So I did have a full-on intro to microbiology episode. I believe it was, actually, I don't remember which episode it was, but just scroll back to find more information on this. So this is a means for microbiologists to differentiate different types of bacteria that can help further identify them. So gram-positive bacteria have something called peptidoglycan in their cell walls, and then gram-negative don't have that. And gram-positive will stain purple in a gram stain, and gram-negative will stain pink in a gram stain. And then I also just briefly want to talk about bacterial shape. So there's like the caucus, which is around spherical bacteria, and there's bacilli, which is like a rod shaped. There is coccobacilli, which is kind of like a short rod or a long sphere, depending on how you want to look at it, but mostly it's described as a short rod. There's other shapes as well, like spiral shapes, but bacilli and cocci are kind of the most common. So why did I want to go through that? Because I want to talk about anthrax. Now, most I'm pretty sure most people remember the anthrax scare. Well, it wasn't a scare because it was actually, there were actually attacks. But in 2001, Literally a week after 9-11, several letters containing anthrax spores were mailed to news offices and also to Democratic senators Tom Daschle, I think, and Patrick Leahy. These letters ended up killing five people and also infected 17 other people. In April 2005, investigators began focusing on a man named Bruce Edwards Ivins, who was a scientist at the American government's biodefense labs in Fort Detrick that is. But a week later, he was put under surveillance, and the information I found honestly mostly came from Wikipedia, so just FYI. So he was declared to be the sole culprit of the anthrax letters on August 6th in 2008, based on DNA analysis of the anthrax itself. So not matching his DNA to anything, DNA of the anthrax that was sent to these people, and anthrax that was found in the lab that he worked at in which he was the sole person who was handling that that specimen so the quote here i have is we were able to identify in the early in early 2005 the genetically unique parent material of the anthrax spores used in the mailings the parent material of the anthrax spores used in the attacks was a single flask of spores known as rmr-1029 that was created and solely maintained by dr i so this type of analysis is somewhat commonly used to trace back certain outbreaks, 
So I actually remember sitting in on a presentation at one of the hospitals I worked at by some PhD candidates about tracing back bacterial DNA for the um, cholera outbreak in Haiti in 2010. So this is not anywhere near as straightforward as using human DNA analysis because bacterial DNA mutates very, very easily. So there's a lot of like theorizing, I guess. I, I don't have the exact science down on here because it's a pretty complex topic. So I'm not going to talk about it in detail here. But yeah, it, it's kind of like ancestral DNA typing if you look at it from a human perspective, but it's much more complicated than that. And because of that, it should be noted that it like there were criticisms that this wasn't the most reliable way of linking Dr. Ivans to the crime. However, the FBI investigators did note that the allegations were made in consideration of other evidence and other factors which were not discussed in the article that I read. So what actually is anthrax? It is the name of a disease caused by bacillus anthracis. So just like how COVID-19 is the name of the disease caused by the virus known as SARS coronavirus 2. Bacillus anthracis is a gram-positive bacilli. So in my lab, actually in the labs that I work at, like if a technologist sees a gram-positive bacilli in their microscope slide, they kind of have to do a bunch of different, like, they have to add on a bunch of different safety precautions just in case. It's very unlikely that it is anthrax, but of course, as you'll find out later in this episode, it is, anthrax is no joke. So the infection itself could be acquired through the skin, through inhalation, or meningeal and gastrointestinal infections. Although those ones are less common or rare than uh, cutaneous or contact through skin. So most of the time, if there is any kind of skin-related bacterial infection, it's because there was some kind of break in the skin. As I've discussed in the immunity episode, your skin does count as part of your immune system because it's a physical barrier between your like insides and the outside. However, with anthrax, doesn't matter if there's a break in the skin it could still infect you just by direct contact even if you're if you have no cuts where you had touched um, something containing the bacteria so someone who is infected cutaneously is not usually contagious but if there was some kind of direct contact then there could still be a chance of infection gastrointestinal uh, infections can occur after the ingestion of inadequately cooked meat containing vegetative forms of the organism and we'll go into like more symptoms later because it's it's bad and then of course inhalation through inhalation of spores can cause pulmonary infection and can often be fatal in nature this bee anthracis can be found on domesticated animals like goats cattle sheep and horses but can also be found in a lot of wildlife including hippos elephants and cape buffalo under normal circumstances, a human would only be infected naturally if they were exposed to the infected animals or animal products, though the rate of natural infection has decreased over the years because of increased safety precautions. So I talked about spores, and for people who, I'm sure people have heard the term but aren't sure, spores are like a dormant 
very strong form of an organism when the environment is not favorable. So for bee anthracis, they form spores when the environment is very dry. Spores are very strong and very resistant to destruction, and they can stay in certain environments, like alive, for decades. Under more favorable conditions, the spores will germinate and multiply. So in the human body, it's rich in amino acids and glucose, and that is very, very favorable for bee anthracis. So when these spores germinate inside the body, they will be detected by your immune system. Again, we've talked about this in a little more detail, but macrophages are cells that will swallow invasive like foreign cells. So it will, it will activate and it will try to eat the bee anthracis. However, the spores will actually germinate inside the macrophages and it will cause them to migrate to your lymph nodes where the bacteria will then multiply. So symptoms and signs. It is going to get mildly terrifying and vaguely graphic. So if that kind of thing bothers you, I will come back another day. So most people will begin to show symptoms within one to six days of exposure, unless if they were uh, infected through inhalation, for which the incubation period can sometimes be more than six weeks. So it could take a while for people to notice. In a cutaneous so skin uh, infection, it can begin as like a painless, puritic, red-brown papule. So it, it's kind of like a pimple, basically, like a raised bump on the skin. And this will appear one to 10 days after exposure. It will then grow and the surrounding area gets really dark and swollen. And then it undergoes central ulceration. So it forms an ulcer and then a black eschar will develop. So an eschar is basically a piece of dead tissue. It's a necrotic tissue and it's, it looks kind of like a, a scab, but it's like tissue rather than just blood, which is usually what scabs are. It's, it's dried blood. The person may also experience malaise, myasia, which is, I believe, body pain, like muscle pain, headache, fever, nausea, and vomiting. And it can take several weeks for the wound to heal. So with a gastrointestinal infection, it can be, it can range from asymptomatic, like you might not even know, to totally fatal. This can cause fever, nausea, abdominal pain, and bloody diarrhea. And there could also be possible accumulation of protein-containing fluid in the abdominal cavity, which is called ascites. As you might imagine, because if you consider what it did to the skin, Something similar will happen on the inside. There could be intestinal necrosis and septicemia, which is pretty much very, very, very bad. If someone was infected through the oropharyngeal, like basically, it's not totally inhalation. It's like you breathe it in and it's in your throat. As you might imagine, there will be lesions with necrotic ulcers on the tonsils and the back of throat or the hard palate where the bacteria will linger if you accidentally inhaled it. They might experience swelling in the neck, enlarged cervical lymph nodes, which obviously lymph nodes, because it is part of your immune system, but the bacteria is germinating and multiplying in there. So it would, it would be very reactive to that. People would experience hoarseness, sore throat, fever, and possible airway obstruction, I guess, depending on how bad the swelling is. Now, inhalation means like, You've inhaled the spores all the way into your lungs, 
So it will begin with flu-like symptoms or COVID-like symptoms, but the fever will worsen over the next couple of days and the person may develop chest pain with severe respiratory distress, so difficulty breathing, followed by cyanosis, which is a bluish discoloration on the skin and the mucous membranes due to deoxygenation. So obviously it's affecting your breathing. You can't get oxygen into your blood, which means you don't get oxygen going into your tissue, which is bad. If it continues, the person could go into shock and then become comatose. This might also manifest in severe hemorrhagic necrotizing enlargement of lymph nodes, which basically means lymph nodes get big and then they die. Necrotizing means dying tissue. And then hemorrhagic means bleeding. So I think you can put that together and know that it's bad. And this can actually spread to nearby parts of your like respiratory system. So bad news. It could also cause bloody pleural effusion, which is bloody fluid accumulating in the lungs, hemorrhagic meningoencephalitis, or may cause gastrointestinal anthrax to develop as well. So to diagnose someone with anthrax, you would use pretty much the same way you would identify other bacterial infections, so through a culture and the gram stain. Again, the gram stain is kind of like your first little hint at what something could be. So if they see something that is a gram-positive bacilli and it does have a certain look, then you know safety precautions are taken and more tests are being conducted on the specimen to determine uh, or identify what this bacteria actually is. They could also do direct fluorescent antibody tests and PCR, which, as I said, is looking at DNA, like targeting certain genes and replicating it and seeing if those genes are there. Other quicker methods, because cultures could take a few days for the specimen to grow, is a chest x-ray or CT scan if that person has respiratory or pulmonary symptoms. So the prognosis ranges from not terrible to like very bad. If a person is infected through inhalation, so it's in their lungs, or meningeal infection, so it's basically getting to their brain, that's 100% fatal. If it's a cutaneous infection, so on the skin, there's a 10 to 20% um, fatality rate. A gastrointestinal infection is 40%, and then an oropharyngeal infection is 12 to 50% fatal. So luckily, it can be treated in most cases with antibiotics. If a person has is experiencing meningitis as a result, there's corticosteroids that can help. Some other drugs can also be used in conjunction with antibiotics to treat it. The scary thing is that strains that are being developed for biological warfare are actually made to be resistant to several antibiotics. However, these strains have not actually been encountered in a clinical setting, which is kind of a relief, but it is terrifying to know that they exist. And for people who are regularly working with anthrax, whether it is these biological warfare or, you know, people in a medical setting who are in very high risk level labs, there is a vaccine available. So that is good. And yeah, pretty short episode again, but I hope that was interesting. I hope my little rant in the beginning kind of was amusing. But as per usual, if you enjoyed it, please uh, follow the podcast wherever you're listening, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or 
Podchaser or whatever, because that really helps. You can find Forensic Friends on Instagram at Forensic Friends Podcast and Twitter ish kind of it's there at forensic fiends and yeah that's it goodbye